Once again, would you join me in turning to the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 21. We're going to pick up with verse 5 and go through the end of the chapter. I'll simply be reading through verse 6 as we begin. Luke chapter 21, beginning with verse 5. And while some were talking about the temple, that it was adorned with beautiful stones and votive gifts, he said, As for these things which you are looking at, the days will come in which there will not be one left, or there will not be left one stone upon another which will not be torn down. Father, open your word to us this morning, we ask, in Christ's name. It was the final week of Jesus' life, just before his death. All of the public attempts of the various religious groups, the religious leaders of Jerusalem, to discredit Jesus, had failed completely. We're told that they no longer even dared to ask him a question. Jesus warned his disciples in the hearing of all the people to beware of the religious leaders because of their pride and their greed and their hypocrisy. And he also affirmed, commended, the sacrificial generosity of a poor widow who came to the temple to give all that she had. Then Jesus and his disciples leave the temple. And this is where we pick up the story this morning. They left the temple, they cross the Kidron Valley and make their way up to the Mount of Olives. This is where he taught the lesson that we call the Olivet Discourse because it took place on the Mount of Olives. New Testament scholar Earl Ellis said that the Olivet Discourse has been the subject of more scholarly debate than perhaps any other passage in the Gospels. And as we work our way through this discourse, it will be clear why. Jesus is speaking in prophetic terms. He's using prophetic Language And the language that he uses can sometimes be confusing, as much prophetic literature can be. The confusion comes into play here because Jesus is speaking about more than a single event. He's not only speaking about his second coming. He's also speaking about the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. And so unless we get that straight, all kinds of confusion will set in. Some of Jesus' statements had a near prophetic fulfillment, and some of his statements have a distant prophetic fulfillment. Because of the complexity of Jesus' teaching there on the Mount of Olives, I'm simply going to highlight a few aspects of the passage this morning. Perhaps one day we'll come back and we'll 
look at the Olivet Discourse in detail and look at how Matthew and Mark portray this and put all of that together. But this morning, I just want to pull out a few things for you as we look at this passage together as Jesus discusses what is to come in regard to the disciples and the fullness of the kingdom. The first thing I want you to note is the disciples' observation. We see that here in verse 5. While some were talking about the temple, that it was adorned with beautiful stones and votive gifts. Now remember, Jesus and his disciples are leaving the temple in order to go to the Mount of Olives. So the picture is that they are walking together and some of the disciples are looking back at this amazing temple. And this is the topic of discussion for them. Speaking of the temple and how it was adorned with beautiful stones and and votive gifts. Mark, in his account of this, says that as Jesus came out of the temple, one of the disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. The temple, which the disciples were speaking of, was not, of course, the original temple. The original temple was built by Solomon. The original temple was destroyed by the Babylonians. The same context of Jeremiah that we've been reading for so long. The Babylonians came down and destroyed the temple, and then the temple had to be rebuilt. When the people were brought back after the exile, they began the work of rebuilding the temple. When Herod the Great comes along, He begins to expand on the temple. He wants to refurbish it. He begins a national reconstruction program. So about 37 BC, he begins the process. The re, well, I should say, Herod the Great becomes king in Israel in 37 BC. He starts refurbishing the temple in 19 BC, and that work continues for 80 years. Can you imagine that? Imagine instigating a building program knowing it's going to take 80 years to finish. That's what he did. It wasn't completed until AD 63, 64. And then what happens? If you know your history, you know that his building program was completed, and then seven years later, Rome comes down against Jerusalem and raises it to the ground. But at this point, when this conversation is taking place, Herod's temple still stood and was still under construction. And it was stunning in its beauty, one of the most beautiful buildings in the ancient world. 
The ancient historian Josephus describes the temple this way. The, out, the, the whole of the outer works of the temple was in the highest degree worthy of admiration. For it was completely covered with gold plates which, when the sun was shining on them, glittered so dazzlingly dazzlingly, that they blinded the eyes of the beholders, not less than when one gazed at the sun's rays themselves. And on the other sides, where there was no gold, the blocks of marble were of such a pure white that to strangers who had never previously seen them from a distance, they looked like a mountain of snow. And so that's what the disciples were seeing as they walk to the Mount of Olives. And that's what they are commenting on. That's what they're talking about. Now, we know from Mark, as we've just seen, that they are directing these comments to Jesus. And Jesus now replies in verse 6 and says, As for these things that you are looking at, The days will come in which there will not be left one stone upon another which will not be torn down. Well, that's an interesting twist in the conversation. Probably not something the disciples were expecting. They're just commenting on the impressiveness of the building. And Jesus turns around and gets theological. Jesus gets prophetic. Jesus talks about what is going to happen to this beauty that they witness. Now, this was a remarkable prophecy. According to Josephus, some of the stones in the building were 45 cubits in length, five in height, and six in breadth. Now, a cubit is 18 inches, and so the dimensions of some of these stones were 67 and a half feet in length, seven and a half feet in height, nine feet in breadth. These are massive stones. And yet Jesus says that these very stones will be thrown down. And of course, that prophecy was literally fulfilled in AD 70 when the Romans destroyed the temple in Jerusalem. Now, the question that comes to my mind as I read that and understand the size of these stones is, how? How do you throw down a stone like that? Well, here's how they did it. They erected scaffolds around the walls of the temple and the surrounding buildings, and they filled them with wood and other flammable material, and they set them on fire. And the intense heat from the fire would cause the stones to crumble. And after it was further dismantled and sifted to find all of the melted gold, the rubble was then thrown down into the Kidron Valley. The destruction of the temple was an act of divine judgment. God punished his people for rejecting his son, the Lord Jesus. The destruction of the temple was also a gospel sign a sign of the new salvation which God had provided in Jesus. The temple wasn't needed anymore. The temple was the shadow. Jesus was the reality. The ancient system of 
Jewish religion had come to an end. The old temple sacrifices no longer atoned for sin. Now the only temple that mattered was the temple of Jesus' own body, which was torn down from the cross and raised again from the grave, giving eternal life to every Jew and every Gentile who would trust in him. Now, notice, after Jesus prophesies concerning the destruction of the temple, the disciples have further questions. Verse 7 says, they questioned him, saying, Teacher, when therefore will these things happen? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? The disciples wanted to know when the destruction of the temple would take place and also what would be the sign that would precede the destruction of the temple. We've got to get this right, brothers and sisters. At this point, the disciples aren't asking about the second coming. They're asking about the destruction of the temple. And Jesus answers those questions. But Jesus also tells them about things that they're not asking about. The rest of this chapter, that is to say the rest of the Olivet Discourse, contains Jesus' response as he answers the questions which the disciples ask in relation to the destruction of the temple. But as he does that, he's also preparing future disciples like you and I for the end of the world the end of this age. Jesus answered their questions about what would happen before and during the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple, which would occur in 70 AD. But as he does so, the end of all things is in the background. This is because the destruction of the temple is only the beginning It is a portent of the final judgment. It's the beginning of the end. There is a sense in which the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple is the end of the beginning of the last days. So Jesus extends the discussion from the destruction of the temple to encompass the end of this age as well. We'll see how he does that beginning with verse 8 as we look now at Jesus' teaching. Again, we don't have time to go through this point by point, but I do want to highlight a few things for us today. In verse 32, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all things take place. Now that's a time indicator That's intended to communicate that these things will happen within a given time frame. And there has been much scholarly debate over the meaning of that word generation, as you may know. Now, in the first century, a generation had a very common definition. Everyone understood generation to mean a period of approximately 40 years. And I don't see any reason to import a different meaning into this text. The only reason to do so would be in order to adapt the passage to a preconceived theological construct. And that's always a bad idea. 
We're to derive our theology from the text, not import our theology into the text. This, of course, was a very popular thing to talk about in the last century or so. There are those who taught that the generation that is being spoken of here was that which followed not Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection, not this particular immediate context, but the creation of the modern state of Israel in 1948. And so there were a lot of people who saw, well, look, Israel is a nation again. Let's start the countdown. It's one generation from now. And so you had books and pamphlets and people teaching that, well, 1988, that's a generation from 1948. That's when the rapture is going to happen. There was a guy who sent little booklets out to every pastor in the country titled 88 Reasons Why Jesus is Coming in 1988. If you're wondering, it didn't happen. The next year, everybody got another little booklet in the mail. 89 reasons. He had to add something because he had forgotten to account for the year zero, you see. Of course, it didn't happen in 89 either. And so once the literal understanding of a generation no longer fit then it had to be redefined in all kinds of ways. It's a lot easier, isn't it, just to let the text speak for itself and to understand that Jesus, when he talks about a generation, is responding to the disciples' questions about the temple. Jesus is is saying that all the things he's teaching them would take place leading up to the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of Jerusalem. The temple. Jesus is speaking these words around 30 AD. The destruction of the temple takes place in 70 AD. Don't have to be a mathematician to figure out that's 40 years. The traditional period of a generation. And Jesus teaches his disciples, and as he does, he warns them about several things that would happen in the years prior to the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. First thing he warns them about is false teachers. Come back to verse 8. He said, see to it that you are not misled, for many will come in my name saying, I am he and the time is near. Do not go after them. Jesus knew that people always make mistakes by predicting the end of the world. In the 17th century, it was a rabbi named Sabbatai Sevi. And thousands of Jews worshipped him as the Christ. In the 20th century, it was men like Jim Jones and David Koresh who led hundreds of people to unnecessary deaths. And today, when you go on the internet, 
you'll find all kinds of websites like the Rapture Index. Again, predicting how soon until Jesus returns. False teachers are everywhere. False teachers claiming to be the Messiah. False teachers claiming to know the timing of the return of Jesus. When the teaching of scripture is clear that no man knows the day or the hour. Verses 9 and 10, Jesus gives them another warning. He warns about wars. When you hear of wars and disturbances, do not be terrified, for these things must must take place first, but the end does not follow immediately. Then he continued by saying to them, Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. The historian Will Durant wrote, War is one of the constants of history and has not diminished with civilization and democracy. In the last 3,421 years of recorded history, only 268 of those years have seen no war. The only way this makes any sense at all is if you're confining that period to a certain place and a certain time. Because wars are always going on. And so what kind of prophecy is that? Well, it's a prophecy that only makes sense if you're in a place where there may not be war for a certain amount of time and yet there are all, now there are rumors of wars. Of course, there were the Romans who came and waged war against Jerusalem, which led to, led to its fall in 70 AD. And leading up to that point, there were all kinds of strife and rebellion and rumors that the end was coming until it finally did. Jesus also warned his disciples about catastrophes that would take place. He says in verse, the first part of verse 11, there will be great earthquakes and in various places plagues and famines. And there were very powerful earthquakes in Phrygia in 61 AD and the famous earthquake in Pompeii two years later. There were also a number of famines such as one in the early 60s when Paul, you'll remember, was trying to raise money from the Corinthians for the relief of the Christians in Jerusalem. And these catastrophes, of course, have continued through the ages. Jesus also warned his disciples about cosmic signs there at the end of verse 11. There will be terrors and great signs from heaven. And the historian Josephus from the first century records that a comet, which he called a tailed star, appeared over the city of Jerusalem for what he describes as a a long time. And it took, as he perceived it, the form of a sword. Jesus warned his disciples about persecution in verse 12. Before all these things, they will lay their hands on you and will persecute you. Delivering you to the synagogues and prisons, bringing you before kings and governors for my name's sake. Now, be careful here. 
Who's he speaking to? You, the disciples. They will be persecuted. There will be synagogues that they will be delivered over to. And of course, the disciples, to be the apostles, did face persecution. Ironically, not first at the hands of the Romans, but at the hands of the Jewish religious leaders, the synagogues. It's believed that every one of the apostles, with the exception of John, who was banished to the Isle of Patmos, was martyred because of their faith in Christ. Jesus warned his disciples about evangelistic opportunities Look at verse 13. It will lead to an opportunity for your testimony. It will lead to, you're going to be persecuted. And those persecutions are going to lead to an opportunity to testify to Jesus Christ. Praise God. Let's pray for our evangelistic team that they face persecution which will lead to opportunities for the gospel. I'm glad you said amen, Joe. (laughs) In the midst of persecution, God's people are able to point to Jesus. And again, this happened to the apostles who were interrogated by the Sanhedrin. It happened to Stephen as he was being stoned for his faith. It happened throughout history as God's people are enabled to speak for Jesus. Jesus also warned his people, his disciples, to watch and to pray. Jump down to verse 36. Keep on the alert at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are about to take place and to stand before the Son of God. Man. That's what God's people ought to do. And notice how there in verse 36, it's all brought together. The disciples are being told to be alert and to pray so that they might have strength to escape and to endure all of these things that are about to take place, and in doing so, will be able to stand before the Son of Man. Well, standing before the Son of Man is eschatological language. Jesus is talking about doing what is necessary to remain faithful now, so on that final day, when Jesus sits on his throne, we will be able to stand. Having persevered. So having analyzed this Olivet Discourse, granted very briefly, what is the application for us this morning? Pray and be ready. Pray and be ready for Jesus. The words of Jesus from this farewell prophecy make a dramatic difference For his people, as we face sometimes desperate times of danger. A powerful example comes from the preaching ministry of Donald Gray Barnhouse. It was the summer of 1939 and Barnhouse had been preaching in Scotland. 
His family was vacationing on the coast of France. He was scheduled to be next in Belfast, Northern Ireland, by that Saturday night. But he decided that first he would make a quick trip to France to spend some time with his family. And on his way out of Britain, Barnhouse was warned that he might not be able to make it back in time to preach on Sunday. Europe was in turmoil. 1939. There were rumors of war. Hitler threatened to march on Danzig. Barnhouse decided to take his chances, but the official who stamped his passport said, Don't forget, I warned you. And it proved to be a prescient warning. Just a few days later, Hitler invaded Poland, and all flights to England were canceled. Barnhouse had to make a long, slow journey overland to Paris and then back to the French coast in order to catch a ferry from France to England. And everywhere he went, there were signs of the coming battle. Church bells were ringing across the countryside. Trains were jammed with soldiers. And some of the towns they passed would be subsequently destroyed in bombings. Barnhouse made his passage to England late at night. And while he was visiting with the ship's captain, the radio reported that the prime minister had issued Germany an ultimatum. Unless the Nazis withdrew from Poland, Britain would go to war. It would be the last civilian steamship to cross the English Channel until the war was over. And Barnhouse was on it. London was as chaotic as Paris had been. The railway platforms were lined with crying children being evacuated to the countryside. Those of you who have read The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe by C.S. Lewis know that's what was going on there. These four children were shipped out to live in someone else's home where they found the wardrobe, of course. And that was all predicated on this. Got to get the children out of the city because we're about to be bombed. The children are standing there on the train platforms, weeping. Barnhouse crossed the countryside by train. He took another night passage, this time to Northern Ireland. And by the time he reached Belfast, it was three in the morning. And he had only a few hours to get some rest before he was to preach. The church was packed. Everyone expecting the declaration of war to be announced at any time. The church's pastor was happy to have Barnhouse there. He kept saying, thank God you're here. I pray that God will give you something to say to the lads. This may be the last sermon that some of them ever hear. And then just as Barnhouse is getting ready to step into the pulpit, One of the elders slipped a note to the pastor who passed it along to Barnhouse. It read, no reply from Hitler. The prime minister has declared war. And Barnhouse began by telling the congregation that he had a perfect text for them that morning. 
a text first spoken by the Lord Jesus Christ as a command to his people. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. And he then recounted the experiences that he had on his way to Belfast. And as he described each terror, he stopped and repeated his text. Do not be alarmed. The siren will sound and the soldiers will mobilize. Do not be alarmed. Millions of homes will be broken up. Do not be alarmed. Children will be torn from their mothers and their cries will represent the prayerful wails that are going up all over the world. Do not be alarmed. And as Barnhouse went through his litany of lamentation, piling up monstrous grief upon agonizing horror, The tension in the church was mounting, and finally Barnhouse stopped and said, these words are either the words of a madman, or they are the words of God. And he shook his fist toward heaven and cried out, oh God, unless Jesus is God, these words are the most horrible that could be spoken to men who have hearts that can weep and bowels that can be gripped by human suffering. Men are dying. Do not be alarmed. Children are crying in their misery with no beloved face in sight. Do not be alarmed. How can Jesus say such a thing? And then Barnhouse gave the answer, of course. Jesus Christ is God. He is the Lord of history. He is the God of circumstances. Nothing has ever happened apart from him. The sin of man has reduced the world to passion and fury. Men tear at each other's throats. Yet in the midst of the history in which Jesus is Lord, everyone who believes in him will know the power of his resurrection. And know that because of the sovereignty of God, because of the lordship of Jesus Christ, we need not be alarmed because nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Brothers and sisters, this is our hope in all of life's difficulties. And whatever you are enduring, whatever trial, difficulty, circumstance may befall us, trust in the sovereign God who became man so that he might become our sympathetic high priest. Father, make it so. May we trust you. May we resist the temptation to put our trust elsewhere. May we know, Father, that you are Lord and that there is no reason to fear. There is no reason to be alarmed because you hold us in the palm of your hand. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.